Well, I have to tell you guys, I think this is perhaps the greatest failure of Trump's presidency. Uh, He has on this issue shown an almost bewildering lack of of leadership and, frankly, even interest. When Eric Swalwell farted, the whole night passed, much like the gas passed from Swalwell, and Trump said nothing, issued no tweet, okay? And then the next day comes, still nothing. We've got a Democrat farting on live TV. Donald Trump somehow, for some reason, says nothing about it at all. And as if that wasn't bad enough, this morning, Trump tweeted about Swalwell. We finally got the Swalwell tweet. I saw Trump's Twitter, Swalwell. I'm thinking, now it's finally here. Still didn't mention it. This morning, Trump tweeted, this is what he said. Why do Shannon Bream and Fox News waste airtime on Democrat representatives Eric Swalwell, who recently left the presidential primaries, having attained a grand number of zero in the polls? I don't even know how that is possible. Fox should stay with the people that got them there, not losers. Come on. He, he even says waste airtime but then doesn't throw in a thing about the fart. All you need was something in the parentheses about the fart. And this, I mean, this is like criticizing, this is like if, if Trump was criticizing OJ and didn't mention the fact that he killed two people or criticizing you know, John Travolta and didn't mention Battlefield Earth. It just, I know it's obvious, but at the same time, you can't leave that out. What did we elect Donald Trump for if he's not going to tweet about Swalwell's farts? I thought we'd easily have 15 or 20 tweets by now. How is it the moment that happened, they should have been in the Oval, they should have been in the war room coming up with a strategy. How was he not giving an address to the nation from the Rose Garden the next day about this? I can tell you one thing. When I am president, I promise you that if one of my opponents farts on live TV, it will be the only thing I talk about for the next month. I will give an address to a joint session of Congress about it. I won't let you down the way that Trump has let us down. And I don't understand this. Something's going on here with Trump. Now I'm going to get to the bottom of it, so to speak. Uh, Anyway, debate last night. So Democrat debate, um, uh, another one halfway through. I I checked halfway through the debate. I checked uh, online just to see how many of these things we've got coming up still. And they're going to do seven more. They've got seven more of these debates coming up, and they get progressively more boring with each one. Although I was pretty upset last night because I'm watching it, I'm gritting my teeth, getting through it, using all my willpower, a heroic effort, if I must say, especially because before the debate, I'm thinking, okay, I got to do some debate prep because I got to watch this thing. I go to the liquor cabinet. I realize I'm out of bourbon. Now, me running out of bourbon is unheard of. I don't know how that's an, that's an oversight already, but running out of bourbon before a debate? That I was ashamed by that, embarrassed, um, and then I had to go through the entire debate without it. So uh, finally about, I don't know, maybe about hour and 15 minutes into it, I, I give up, can't take it anymore. Almost bo- bored to death, Liter- literally almost bored to death on the verge of cardiac arrest. So I turned the TV off, and apparently, it was, it was right when I turned it off that Joe Biden said, Blafrican American. <laughs> right when I turned it off. I mean, this is, I paid my dues. I watched it for, for 75 minutes. I put my time in. I deserve to see that live when it happened. I deserve the reward of hearing Joe Biden live say, Blafrican American. Those are the moments we long for when we're watching these debates. And, and I missed it. But 
I suppose this is why God made YouTube, thankfully, so uh, we can we can relive it. And actually, Biden's entire answer on race was was pretty great. Watch this. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm part of that that Obama coalition. I come out of the black community in terms of my support. If you notice, I have more people supporting me in the black community that announced for me because they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus, the only African-American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, my point no, is, that's not true. The other that's one is true. here. <laughs> <laughs> I said the first. So my point is, my point is, one of the reasons I was picked to be vice president was because of my relationship, long-standing relationship with the black community. Black African American. I, you could tell that he was he was going in with black, right? And then he realized that the more halfway through saying black, he realized the more PC thing is African American. So then he tries to change, but. You can't, if you've already started with black, you just have to commit. You can't, you can't switch midstream. And that's, that's just a good general rule of thumb when you're talking about races and ethnicities. If you're going with one thing, don't switch. So it's like if you, if you started to say Hispanic, uh, and then you realize halfway through that Latino is the more popular thing to say these days, you can't try to switch because then it's going to come out as his Tino. And then what you've done is you've made up a new term for a race and, or, or an ethnicity. And I think this is, Again, general rule of thumb as a politician is uh, you don't want to come up with new terms for races and ethnicities. You really want to stick with the established ones. You don't want to accidentally make up a new one. That's, that is, that's a rookie mistake that Joe Biden made at the age of 78. Uh, and then the interesting thing is that Joe Biden claims to have come out of the black African-American community. Which, so I guess he's saying that he is black, or I, 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 I don't know. It's just profoundly awkward all around. You've got this old white guy talking about the black African-American community, just trying to, trying to claim that he's got the most support among black people out of anyone on the stage, talking about his credentials on race. Then you got the split screen with an actual black man listening to him, and it's really awkward. In fact, all of Joe Biden's answers become 50 times more awkward if we get the split screen of someone reacting to what he's saying in real time, doesn't matter what he's saying. It's just, it's always, because the reaction from the other person, whether it's another candidate, somebody in the audience, your, your expression is always, when you're listening to Joe Biden give an answer, you're kind of always like, it's, you got this express, it's kind of the expression that you have when you're watching football and somebody's knee bends the wrong way and you're just like that. Um, and that's, that's the expression every time Joe Biden starts to talk. Very painful, very painful, very painful moment, or Joe-ment, as, as he might say. Joe Biden was also asked about domestic violence. Now, this should be a layup, okay? You're being given a chance to talk about why domestic violence is bad. You can't ask for more of a softball than that as a politician. But this is Joe Biden we're talking about. And here's the interesting thing, though. I've noticed this. And this is kind of a formula and equation with Joe Biden. Doesn't hold up every single time. But sometimes he just dives right in with the crazy, like he did with, like he did with Black African American. But uh, generally, I've noticed that he can give kind of a good, at least decent, passable answer for 60 seconds. 60 seconds is Joe Biden's cutoff. He could talk about something 
usually for 60 seconds, and everything would be basically fine. Once he goes over that 60-second marker, that's when he hits a landmine and everything falls apart. And and I'll show you what I mean. So let's watch. Here's his answer on domestic violence. Let's watch the first 60 seconds. And uh, and then we'll we'll go to the next. But here's the first 60 seconds of his answer. Yes. And by the way, it's one of the reasons. The first thing I would do is make sure we pass the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization, which I wrote. The fact I didn't write the reauthorization. I wrote the original act. The fact is that what happens now is that we, in fact, have to fundamentally change the culture, the culture of how women are treated. That's why, as vice president, when I asked the president I could start the the movement on the college campuses to say it's on us. It's everyone's responsibility. We do not spend nearly enough time dealing with. I was stunned when I did a virtual town meeting that told me 30,000 people were on the on the call, young people between 15 and 25, and found out. I said, "What do you need? What do you need to make you safer on college campuses and in your schools?" You know what they said? Get men involved, engage the rest of the community, and that's when we started this movement on the college campuses to fundamentally change the culture. Okay, so that's fine, right? Pretty good. No problem. Not great, but passable. He'll get by. But then the witching hour hits. The clock strikes 60. Joe Biden turns into a pumpkin. And this is the pivot point. Okay, he's on the right path, saying the right thing. But then he gets to a rhetorical fork in the road. And one path points to normal. One path is sort of normal, wrap it up. You're done. The other path points to crazy nonsense. Like he sees a sign, you know, arrow, crazy nonsense this way, normal that way. And for some reason, he's already been on the path for 60 seconds. And he says, well, I guess I'll just go with the crazy nonsense. And he goes down that path. So let's watch the pivot, the change of direction. And everything falls gloriously to pieces. No man has a right to raise a hand to a woman in anger other than in self-defense, and that's rarely ever occurs. And so we have to just change the culture, period, and keep punching at it and punching at it and punching at it. It will be a big... No, I really mean it. It, it it. It's a gigantic issue, and we have to make it clear from the top, from the president on down, that we will not tolerate it. We will not tolerate this culture. Now, before we analyze what we all just heard there, look at Joe's expression at 133 in that clip. Can we just show the the freeze frame 133? That's the expression of somebody who knows that, and and that's right after he was done talking, and he knows that he just said some crazy crap. He knows it. That's him in his head going, oh no, why did I just, did I just start, did I just say punching at it? Did I just say that? That was a mistake. That was a mistake. Uh, The pivot point here was when he started stipulating the circumstances when it would be okay to hit a woman. That's when now we're we're off the rails. And he's right, of course. It it is okay to hit a woman in self-defense. I think, obviously, right? Does anyone think that, uh, that a woman has some sort of mystical right to just beat the crap out of whoever they want without ever, without anyone ever defending themselves? Of course, he's correct in saying that, but just in terms of optics, in terms of politics, it's not a great idea to get into that. There's no reason to. You weren't asked about that. The question wasn't, when is it okay to hit a woman? 
Uh, that would not be a question that I would expect to hear at an MSNBC debate. So he's talking about domestic violence. He doesn't start. Need, he doesn't need to start listing scenarios where it might be okay to hit a woman. He doesn't need to go. Listen, it's never okay to hit a woman. But if she knows karate and she's trying to kill your dog, then it's just don't don't go there. And you know that all of his handlers and all of Joe's people they're they're backstage watching this, and they hear him go. No man has a right to hit a woman. And they're thinking to themselves, okay, just stop there, Joe. End of sentence. Move on to the next thought. Move on to the next thought. And then he continues on that thought. And they're thinking, oh, my. Oh, God, no. No, no. And it's off the rails. All is lost. So he starts babbling about punching, punching, punching at it. He's talking about domestic violence. And we need to punch at the problem. I, and, and, and I feel bad for the audience because... Every time the audience, Joe Biden's audience, I always feel bad for them because they don't know how to react to what he's saying. And, you know, we've all been in this, in this, this situation. We all have relatives like this. Like you're sitting around at Thanksgiving. There's always that relative that says a bunch of awkward stuff and you never know if they're being stupid on purpose or if they're trying to make a joke or if they're being serious. And so you don't know if you're supposed to laugh or not. And so there's always this awkward half laugh, half serious thing. And that's Joe Biden's audience all the time. Because they hear him saying this, and they're thinking, "Is it? Is this? A, is he doing this on purpose? Is he making a domestic violence joke? I, what am I supposed? How am I supposed to react to this?" I would, I would hate to hear Joe Biden asked. In fact, never mind. I would love to hear him asked about what to do about the murder rate. Listen, with the murder rate, you know what? We just need to stab at it. Need to keep stabbing, shoot it, gouge out its eyes, choke it, bury it in the forest. That's what we got to do about the murder rate. And this guy's the Democratic frontrunner. The Democratic Party has lost its will to live. If this is, if they nominate this guy, they just have given up. I think the Democrat Party they they have given up. Trump has officially broken them irrevocably, and this is it. They've just that's that's a white flag. When they when they put up Joe Biden, they're saying, "All right, forget it. We don't even care anymore." Okay, a few other things from the debate to discuss, but first, a word from Rock Auto. Chain stores, you know, they have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers. RockAuto.com's prices, though, are the same for everybody, and they're reliably low for everybody. That's the best part. RockAuto.com always offers the lowest prices possible. Rather than changing prices based on what the market will will bear, kind of like airlines do, I do a lot of traveling, not a fan of that. But RockAuto.com, it's for everybody. It's cheap, affordable for everybody. Doesn't require membership, doesn't require account login. And uh, it's just, it's really easy to, to navigate. RockAuto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com, shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of, of, uh, of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules, brake parts, tail lamps, motor oil, new carpet if you need it. So whether it's your classic or daily driver, whatever it is that you have, um, you can get everything you need, a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. And that's, for me, that's the thing I like to emphasize about RockAuto.com is just how simple and easy it is. A lot, a lot simpler and easier than you know having to get in your car, go to the actual uh, store, and, and you're going to spend more money or spend more time. Better just go on rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Walsh in their How Did You Hear About Us box so that they know that we sent you. That's rockauto.com. Okay. 
what else? Well, you know, I, I loved Kamala Harris here. There's one Kamala Harris moment I like. She, she's Here she is bragging about losing. Listen to this. I believe we have to have the ability to not only have a nominee who can go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump, and I have taken on Jeff Session, I've taken on Bill Barr, I've taken on Brett Kavanaugh. I know I have the ability to do that. Okay, all those people she just bragged about, those people were confirmed. So she says she took the, she took them on and lost. I took them on. Yeah, you lost though. This would be this would be like the head coach of the Bengals trying to keep his job and talking to the owner and saying, hey, "Listen, I took on the 49ers. I took on the Seahawks. I took on the Ravens and the Rams." Yeah, but you lost by a combined 6,000 points. So it doesn't really I mean the fact that you took them on and lost is sort of the point here. But it's nice that Kamala is proud of losing because of course she's going to do it again in the primary. So the fact that she enjoys it and takes pride in it, I guess, is is good for her. I feel, I, I, and I'm glad that she's made peace with it, and so I feel a little bit better about that as well. Okay, now here's Bernie um, giving the Earth a new prognosis. I thought we had 12 years to live. I think this is kind of a headline. Apparently, we only have eight or nine years to live. Uh, listen, listen to Bernie giving us the bad news. Now I disagree with the thrust of the original question, because your question has said, "What are we going to do in decades?" We don't have decades. What the scientists are telling us, we don't get our act together within the next eight or nine years. We're talking about cities all over the world, major cities going underwater. We're talking about increased drought, talking about increased extreme weather disturbances. The United Nations is telling us that in the years to come, there are going to be hundreds of millions of climate refugees causing national security issues all over the world. That Swalwell fart was worse than I thought. Shaved four years off the lifespan of the earth. I mean, he's, he's literally killing us. And still Trump didn't say anything about it. I, well, I'm not going to get back into that. And then we get to Warren. And um, as always from Warren, we've got uh, uh, vile propaganda and lies. That's her sort of her thing. That's her favorite thing to do, both of those. And so let's start with her sales pitch for abortion. Listen. I believe that abortion rights are human rights. I believe that they are also economic rights. And protecting the right of a woman to be able to make decisions about her own body is fundamentally what we do and what we stand for as a Democratic Party. Understand this. When someone makes abortion illegal in America, rich women will still get abortions. It's just going to fall hard on poor women. It's going to fall hard on girls, women who don't even know that they're pregnant because they have been molested by an uncle. I want to be in America where everybody has a chance. Yes, in America where everybody has a chance. You're going to give everyone a ch- every person a chance by killing millions of persons. And this is actually an important point because the idea behind abortion is expressly, explicitly not to give everyone a chance. That's the point. It is to prioritize certain people over other people. Okay, It's to give the older generation a chance by destroying the younger, by giving the younger generation no chance. It's to give parents a chance by allowing them to execute their children. That's the whole point. The point of the pro-life movement is to give everyone a chance. That's our thing. That's our argument, our objective. That's what we're trying to do. We're the give everyone a chance side. But 
the other side, you're the you're the you know establishing hierarchies and competing claims to rights and weighing this against that and you know favoring this this person over that person. That's your thing. That's what you do on the pro-abortion side. This is how it goes. The pro-abortion side is so wrong, so debased, so evil, so irrational, so that it has to use our arguments and pretend that it's making our case. It borrows our rhetoric, our arguments. Because it knows that we are arguing for something that is clearly more moral and, and more just. And so it has to pretend, basically, has to, basically the pro-abortion side pretends that it's arguing our case. Um, so that was Warren misdirecting and misleading. Now let's take a look at her just straight up bald-faced lying. Senator Warren, you have cast yourself as a fighter. If you were elected, though, you would be walking into an existing fight, a country that is already very divided over the Trump presidency, among other things. Do you see that divide as permanent, or do you need to bring the country together if you become president to achieve your goals? So I think the way we achieve our goals and bring our country together is we talk about the things that unite us. And that is that we want to build an America that works for the people, not one that just works for rich folks. You know, I have proposed a two-cent wealth tax. That is a tax for everybody who has more than $50 billion in assets. Your first $50 billion is free and clear. But your $50 billionth and first dollar, you got to pitch in two cents. And when you hit a billion dollars, you got to pitch in a few pennies more. Here's the thing. Doing a wealth tax is not about punishing anyone. It's about saying you built something great in this country, good for you. But you did it using workers. All of us help pay to educate. You did it using your getting your goods to on roads and bridges. All of us help pay for it. You did it protected by police and firefighters. All of us help pay the salaries for. So when you make it big, when you make it really big, when you make it top one tenth of one percent big, pitch in two cents so everybody else gets a chance to make it. And here's the thing, that's something that Democrats care about, independents care about, and Republicans care about. Because regardless of party affiliation, people understand across this country, our government is working better and better for the billionaires, for the rich, for the well-connected, and worse and worse for everyone else. We come together when we acknowledge that and say Thank we're going to make real change. Thank you, Senator. Okay, so she says that she'll uh, that her wealth tax would, for the first fifty million, would tax people not at all. The first fifty million is free and clear, she says. And then once you hit fifty million, you've got to pitch in a couple pennies, she says. You have to pay two cents, and she repeats this this several times in the debate. Millionaires and billionaires are taxed two cents, two pennies, couple pennies, and with those pennies. She's going to pay for universal pre-K, free college, uh, pay raises for daycare workers, uh, debt forgiveness, several other things, all with the pennies from billionaires. And there are what, like 600 billionaires in America, so two pennies from each of them. So, so basically, she's going to do all this with $12, she's got 12 bucks, and she's going to take care of all those problems. That, now, that's a good deal. I, listen, I, I support that. If you could just if you could do all that with 12 bucks then sure go ahead. But of course the problem is that it's all a lie. She's not she's not talking first of all she can't and won't do all of the things she's promising to do in terms of all the things she's going to pay for. Um, but she's also not talking about a 2 cent tax. She's talking about a 2% tax. 
So I know I know it's a difference of only three letters, cent, percent, per, you know, but it's a significant difference, actually, in terms of numbers. And actually, for billionaires, her latest plan is more like 6%, which would equal $60 million. Or if you want to talk about it in terms of pennies, it would be, what, 600 billion pennies. So, you know, just throw in 600 billion pennies. Not two pennies, 600 billion pennies. That's a, that's a difference of only about, well, 600 billion pennies, approximately. But even that doesn't quite capture it because actually her wealth tax is way more extensive, way further reaching, way costlier than two or even 6%. Um, a piece at the Tax Foundation, taxfoundation.org, talks about this. Uh, Amanda has a piece on the Daily Wire talking about this going into more detail and go read those pieces. Suffice it to say that Warren's plan is much, much, much more involved than how she portrays it. And, and that's, just, that's just as the plan currently stands. And that's trusting that the taxes won't go up, won't go up over time. But of course, they will. I mean, her, plan, her taxes have already gone up and, she, and she's not even elected yet. But when they're enacted, then we know that it expands from there. One thing we've learned is the government never gives money back. They never give up power they've already seized. They never relent. They never pull their hand out of your pocket. Um, Just like the income tax was originally supposed to be moderate and temporary. And now look at us. That's the way it always works. And Warren knows it. And this is just the first step. Step number one. And it is, despite how she tries to frame it, it's a very significant step already, but it's not even the last step. By a long shot. And of course, she uses the old we paid for the roads shtick to justify it, which I guess there are a lot of people in America dumb enough to buy into that line. Uh, otherwise, I, I, she'd probably stop saying it. So um, it's just, which, first of all, if we're talking about loan forgiveness, for example, recent college graduates actually haven't paid for anything, they haven't contributed to the roads. They haven't paid for the roads. They haven't paid to educate workers or anything else. The the contributions of a person in their early to mid-20s who just got out of college, their contributions economically in terms of taxes are exceedingly negligible. So the idea that an adult who's worked for decades, built up his wealth, somehow owes this kid money because of the kid's contribution to road maintenance... (laughs) How much has he chipped in? He's probably actually literally chipped in two cents. Now you've got two cents, sure. So you've got you know a successful businessman who's, who's already paid millions upon millions in taxes. He's the one building the roads and paying for all this stuff. And then you've got a kid that's 23 years old out of college, got his first job. And what, you're saying that the, the millionaire owes that kid because of the kid's... Co- what has he contributed to? Nothing. And even if he had, the idea that because we all chip in to pay for the roads, which isn't, ex- I mean, it depends on what roads we're talking about, and that's not quite as simple as they make it sound, but even still, the idea that, okay, we, we, we all pay taxes for the roads, and therefore, if you use the road, then all of your money belongs to everybody? What kind of nonsense is that? And it, p- people find that convincing? Really? That's compelling? Come on. Um, all right. Before we move on, you know, if you haven't been listening to Andrew Clavin's fantasy podcast, Another Kingdom, 
then you need to get your life together, first of all. You need to go to dailywire.com. Subscribe right now to catch up because on Monday, November 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, Andrew and Michael Knowles will be sitting down together to discuss the final season and also take subscriber questions live from the fans. This live event will be free for everyone to watch on Facebook and YouTube, but only subscribers will be able to ask questions. So you got to go to dailywire.com. Um, plus subscribers exclusively can watch the entirety of the series, or you can listen free to the newest seasons on Apple Podcasts. Go check it out. Don't miss the, the Another Kingdom live discussion happening Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Um, have you guys seen these trailers for the Cats movie? Can we just play this real quick? They're, they're making a movie based on the musical Cats for some reason. I don't know if you've seen these things, but watch this. Tonight is a magical night where I choose the cat that deserves a new life. Going to the ball could get dangerous. <laughs> Come on! Let's dance! I judge a cat by its soul. I've got plenty of soul. Spotlight! And a drum roll, please. Milk! It's party time! The most deserving cat will be reborn into another life. So they can be who they've always dreamed of being. That looks that looks horrifying, doesn't it? Doesn't that look terrifying? Honestly, a musical where everyone, it's, okay, so you've got a musical, number one, that's strike number one, and everybody's dressed like a cat. That's basically my cinematic worst case scenario. That's, I couldn't think of a worse thing. You could not think of a less appealing storyline for me than that. I'd rather watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 3D where Leatherface actually comes out of the screen and pales me on a meat hook and skins me alive. I would take that experience over over this. And think about the fact that this dreck, this garbage, uh, got the green light. How many interesting, thoughtful, original scripts were thrown in the recycle bin so that the studio could dump resources into this ode to furries? Think about that. That's, That's what's depressing. All right, I want to, um, moving on to something more important, I want to revisit this issue briefly. I'm not, I'm not, because I'm, I'm not looking to, to, to just move past it after talking about it one time. As we discussed yesterday, the school board over at, uh, of, of District, two, District 211 in Illinois voted last week, 5-2 to two decision, to allow biological males into the female locker room at Palatine, Palatine High School uh, in Illinois. And the board said that All students should be, quote, treated and supported in a manner consistent with their gender identity. This support apparently necessitates obliterating the privacy and safety and security of of every girl at the school. Uh, A student named Nova Madej, a biological male, identifies as transgender, filed a lawsuit in 2017 against the school. The lawsuit came after a Department of Education mandate in 2015 under Obama forcing Palatine High School to allow boys like himself into the bathrooms and locker rooms with girls. But the school tried to come up with a compromise, and they said, okay, you can come into the the girls' room, but we're going to have private stalls set up for you, and you go right into the stalls, and that's where you get changed and do your business, and then you leave. 
Okay, you don't have to change with the boys then if that makes you feel so, you know, if that if that makes you so upset. But Madej was not happy with this compromise. He demanded that he has access not just to the girls' locker room, but to the exact same area where the girls change. Just to be clear, that's what this is really about. It's not about access to the locker room. He already got that. But now he wants to be in the same area, in the same exact room and space where girls are changing. His basic human rights are evidently violated if he's not able to actually see girls get naked and himself get naked in front of them. That's what he's claiming he has a human right to. He has a human right. He has a human right to see girls get naked and get naked in front of them. That's what he's saying. The school board um, found these deranged arguments convincing. And now, as we discussed yesterday, every girl in the school must shut up and cooperate as biological males invade their private spaces. Now, if you need any help understanding why this is crazy and and, and why this is just evil, really, um, there's a video I played it yesterday uh, that was recorded by the Daily Herald. Uh, A Herald reporter interviewed Madej after the school school board vote, then also interviewed another girl um, named Julia. And so you see that another girl interviewed Madej, who's a boy, and then interviewed uh, Julia, who's an actual girl, not another girl. She's the only girl interviewed between the two of them, just to be clear. Um, But anyway, the contrast between their two reactions is stark. Uh, You got Madej sporting a queen shirt and long pink hair, celebrating the decision, says he's ecstatic, says it's a great step forward. Of course, he's not satisfied, though. Because he still said he still complains that it didn't go quite far enough. He says it's you know it's not everything we wanted. Because it's it's just like we've been talking about with Chick-fil-A this week. It's never everything they want. It's never enough. Never ever enough. He got everything he wanted, but it's not everything he wanted. And then the tenor changes dramatically with Julia's reaction. Her voice is shaking, there are tears in her eyes. She says she's uncomfortable. Uh, you know, her privacy is being invaded. She talks about how she's a swimmer, so she gets changed multiple times throughout the day, completely changed. You know, she's getting into a bathing suit, out of the bathing suit, right? Um, and she's doing this in full view of the other students in the locker room, which is fine when they're girls. But she's saying she's really uncomfortable with a boy being involved in that. And um, and yet, yet, what I thought was striking about the video, one of the striking things, is that even in the face of this outrageous trampling of her basic privacy rights, she still attempts to be as generous as possible to Madej and, uh, and you know, that side of the discussion by saying that, well, look, I understand the school has an obligation to all students, but I just I think I should be accommodated too. Now, I don't think the school board or Madej or the trans activists pushing this crap um, deserve even the slight concession she offers them. Uh, and, and, and the generosity and, and, and grace that she extends. I think she deserves a lot of credit for that. She's more mature than I am because I wouldn't be, be, be so graceful about it. But my point is that you, you see the contrast where you've got this girl who's obviously all she wants is just a little bit of privacy when she gets changed. That's all she wants. And she's still thinking about other people on the other side and saying, yeah, you know, I know they want to be comfortable too, but I really just would like some privacy. That's her point. Meanwhile, you've got Madej, no concern whatsoever for the feelings and rights of the girls at the school. Makes no mention of it. He's just celebrating. Yeah, I got what I want. Not everything I want, but most of it. 
He, he, has, he makes no mention. He doesn't even, he doesn't even not, not even a, an aside, not even a symbolic gesture to the other side saying, look, I know that they feel this way, but uh, hopefully we can work it out. It, nothing, none of that. He does, he does not give a damn about them. And that's what I find. Uh, it's like I said yesterday, you know, I, when you've got these gender confused people, I, I think that uh, in a vacuum, Generally speaking, we want to be compassionate towards people who suffer from these sorts of confusions. But when you're just cruel and arrogant and vicious, and you are throwing other people's rights and concerns to the side and trampling all over them and not giving a damn about them, then my sympathy for you is gone because now you're just a bully. Now, now you're just, that's it. And this is what you find so often with trans activists when it comes to these issues. They just don't care at all if people are uncomfortable or if women want privacy. They don't care. It is all about them. It is not at all about the other side because there are no concessions they are willing to make. It's just, you know, I don't think we focus on this part of it enough where we talk about the system and everything and, and, and the wrong policies. And yeah, we should be talking about that. But what about the individual people who are demanding access to a, to a bathroom, knowing that the people in that room are uncomfortable and just want privacy? You know, how about putting some blame on them? How about this Madej guy? I mean, how about just some blame also on his shoulders? How about holding him responsible for his own actions? He's being a bully. To put it mildly. Now, okay, so we talked about all this. The real question is, what do we do about this? What do we, uh, what do, we do when this stuff happens in the school? How do we fight back? Well, the first thing we, we can do is, 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 is remember that school boards, the board members, are public officials. And they are setting policies that have a profound impact on our children. So if you don't like a decision they made, don't just complain about it into the void. Don't just scream into your pillow. Don't just write angry tweets about it. Give them your personal feedback. And to that end, I'd recommend going to the Township High School District 211 website, adc.2, adc, let me try again, adc.d211.org, adc.d211.org. Go to that website, follow the links, go to the contact page, and you'll find uh, the public contact info for each of these board members, their email address, the you know the number to reach them at the office. And uh, I reach out to them and, and let them know how you feel. These, again, are public officials, and they are making decisions that have an effect on the public, on children. They don't have some right to do that without hearing from the public. But then, um, what if you're a parent, and this happens at your school, what if you're a parent at Palantine or, or anywhere else where this is happening, and it's happening a lot of places, I don't think at this point, yeah, you want to let give your feedback to the school board, but don't just do that and call it a day. Um, other measures have to be taken. Remember, the school is putting your daughter in jeopardy. The school is prioritizing the delusions and fantasies of boys over the safety, privacy, peace of mind, and dignity of your daughter. The school is inviting do- the, the school is inviting boys into the locker room to watch your daughter get changed. That's what's happening. So 
Why isn't this happening in response? Why isn't every parent in that school saying, we are not sending our daughters to class. We are not sending them into that building until this policy is changed. We're not going to send them. You can come arrest us if you want. Arrest us for trying to protect our daughters. Go ahead. But we're, we're, we are not going to cooperate with this. Why aren't parents doing that? If every parent did that, if, if, if even half of the parents did that, this policy would change overnight. You know, with this stuff, we as parents have so much power. We could put an end to it immediately. If we just use the power that we have, you just you 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 have to force their hand. So why not? Why why not fight back like that? This policy was changed, and in fact, I've 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 heard from some kids at the school talking about the environment in the, in the school uh, after this policy was was decided by the uh, the school board, and talking about how you know there's tension, there's a lot of awkwardness, people are worried. Teachers, some according to one person wrote me, said that te- his teachers anyway are are basically you know trying to shut down discussion of it. But my thing is, why are there kids in that school right now? Why is that school not empty? Why is it not a ghost town? Five hundred parents show up to the to the school board meeting, and and many of them are against it. Good, great for you, but then you send your kid to school the next day. Why? Your whole point is that they're putting your daughter in jeopardy, and you send her. Why? Give me one good reason. I'm just so tired of this. Like, if this is happening, the parents need to get together and say, we are not sending our kids into that building. I can tell you this right now. If it were me, and I know sometimes when people get into the, if it were me in this situation thing, I don't like it because it's easy for us to say what we would do in that situation if we're not in the situation. But in this one, I can say very easily, if that were me, and those were that was my daughter in that school, there is no way in hell she is going to school the next day. You want to come arrest me? Go ahead. Go ahead and do it. Not, but my, my daughter is not stepping step foot in that, in that school. And it, like I said, if every parent did that, or even half of the parents did it, um, th- they would have to change the policy. They would have to. You'd force their hand. They'd have to come up with a different solution. They would have no choice. This was what teachers do. Teachers go on strike when they don't like something. And then they get their way because you need the teachers there. Well, you need the students there also. It's the same thing I say with the with the sports stuff. You know, you get these boys that come on the track team or whatever. Well, what? And then... The boys come and they steal all the medals and they ruin everything. And the other parents just keep sending their daughters. Why are all the parents taking their kids out of the sport and saying, "We're no, you have made a mockery of this. We are not going to participate. And, uh, and we're certainly not doing fundraising and all that stuff. We're gone. Our money, everything is out. Our daughters are out until you get these kids out of here. And so you make the school choose. The school has to choose between basically the end of women's of, of girls' sports in their school or requiring that one or two gender-confused boys stay where they belong with the boys' sports. Make them choose that. 
I, I just, it's frustrating to me. We have so much power that we don't use because we're so concerned. Because at the end, you know, th- this is why people talk about, oh, we're headed for a civil war and stuff in, in this culture. And I'm not, that's not what I'm advocating here. I'm saying, as I've said many times about that, people, wor- people who worry that we're headed for a civil war. Uh, well, we're not because no one, people are way too lazy for that. All anyone wants to do is just complain about it on Twitter or, or, you know, on Facebook or whatever, depending on how old they are, uh, depending on what generation, depends on what, what social media site they, they go to to do their complaining. And that's all anybody does. That's all anyone does. That's it. And, and this is a perfect example. I mean, in this case, you know, all, all, the, the, all you have to do is just pull your kids out of the school. It's a really simple thing to do. Yeah, it's going to be a little inconvenient, uh, especially when you've got work and everything. And, and yes, I, I'm not downplaying that, but okay absorb the inconvenience. Be inconvenienced. This is your kid we're talking about, right? This is your child. (sighs) Come on, parents. Step up. Just step up. I don't want to hear any more complaints. I really, I don't even want to hear it. Like, I don't want to hear complaints about from parents who willingly send their kids into schools like this. I'll hear the I'll hear the complaints from the kids, like the girl in that video. No, those are complaints that I will that I want to hear and, and that I think should be heard, and, and I'll sympathize there because those kids don't have a choice. The parents have a choice, though. So that's all. Palantine High School. I'm telling you right now, you could stop this by next week easily. Just stop sending your kids. That's all. Done. Done. Okay, let's leave it there. We'll, we'll save. I got a bunch of emails. We'll save those for tomorrow. Um, but I think that's enough for today. Godspeed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay, supervising producer Mathis Glover, supervising producer Robert Sterling, technical producer Austin Stevens, editor Donovan Fowler, audio mixer Mike Coromina. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2019. Another day, another impeachment witness affirms that President Trump committed no quid pro quo with Ukraine. Of course, you wouldn't know that from the front pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post. We will parse the spin and lies. And then speaking of spin and lies, the Democrats return to the stage for this month's presidential primary debate. A high school girl cries after her district forces her to undress in front of boys. And finally, the mailbag. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show. Michael Knowles Show.